Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Digital Research. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of firmwide research at Galaxy Digital, and I am joined today by Saul Kadir, Christine Kim, and Tyler Williams from Galaxy Digital Public Policy. Um, we're going to talk today about the newly introduced Lummis Gillibrand bill in the U.S. Senate, a comprehensive proposal for crypto uh, regulation uh, in the United States. We're going to talk about uh, Lido and Fay, both their DAOs proposing to dump significant portions of their treasuries um, for stable coins. Um, and we're going to talk about the Board Apes Yacht Club. Um, their Discord was hacked, uh, and I guess one of the leaders or admins of that Discord was fished and hacked, and you know a scam was promoted there. We're going to get dive in a little bit to you know how to how to stay secure and 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 you know what's been going on lately with BAYC. But first, before we dive into those topics this week, let's kick it over to our friend Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Digital Trading uh, to tell us what's happening in markets. Um, Bimnet, I mean, it's we're still just we're still just going, dude. It's I don't know to me, it doesn't feel like that much has changed since last week. But what's it look like from your seat? Yeah, you know, not not too much has has changed um, in terms of the data that the the market has available to it. Week over week, the, the the only material you know new thing that we learned was that the job market you know is still hot. We had non-farm payrolls come in you know higher higher than than expected, uh, but that really you know shouldn't change w- w- what the market is is thinking. We already know the labor market is hot. Uh, we already know that there's a lot of of, of job openings. We are seeing signs that you know some folks are are starting to think about you know cutting their 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 uh, employees, you know, Tesla had the announcement that, you know, Elon's going to thinking about, you know, cutting 10% of his workforce, you know, Coinbase uh, announced, you know, the the hiring freeze. Um, You've also had a a couple of other companies, you know, report, um, you know, either cutting jobs or or stopping to to hire. Um, And that, you know, it's relevant. Um, But again, given that, you know, unemployment's still at 3.6%, we are a really long ways away from from the labor market actually mattering. Um, and to add to that, one of the the, the, the pieces of data that we look to a, a lot is, is sort of survey data, particularly of, of small businesses, you know, which tends to lead, um, you know, big, big corporations. And right now you are seeing a little bit of weakness in uh, labor uh, for small businesses. You started to see a, a pickup in, in small business layoffs. And that typically leads, you know, the 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 that big, you know, companies in the S and P by by six months or so. So I think we're, we've got a little bit of ways to go before employment becomes a, a focus of the market. Uh, but high level, you know, to to steal from actually our, our host Alex Thorne, you know, what's really happening is that the world's central banks are, are getting stopped out of their trades because of inflation. Right, inflation is the number one most important thing in in this market right now, and the Fed. And other central banks can't really pivot towards easy monetary policy without getting inflation under control. And the way that inflation gets under control is, you know, essentially for all practical purposes, a huge slowdown in growth, aka um, a recession, and that will typically lead to, to job losses. So, you know, is the Fed actually, you know, trying to get, you know, unemployment higher? Yes, absolutely. Um, and so, you know, it. The question then becomes like, how does how does one navigate themselves through this market where you know the Fed has this you know weird 
response function like is 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 bad data really good um, and so you're, you're getting to this point where where markets are at a weird inflection there's a lot of uncertainty um, and just to, to cite the the great Jamie Dimon he, he thinks the the next sort of of policies or, or, or the future is, is tantamount to to a hurricane where wow. you really don't know what that what the hell is going on and there's you know winds everywhere etc so uh, let me just just pause there I think that's probably the most appropriate description of, of what it's like what it's going to be like in markets over the next couple of months a hurricane that doesn't sound good um, you know I did see one thing just on this I saw there was a good Bloomberg piece that was saying it had three different um, items. Um, that might be positive bellwethers on the supply side uh, for inflation. One was that um, a barometer of costs uh, for finished electronics, um, so sort of, you know, semiconductors, it has is down 14% from the middle of last year, could have topped out, and that the spot rate for shipping... That sounds like a bottoming effect to me. But, uh... <laughs> yeah, um, and that the spot rate for shipping containers is also down uh, 26% since its all-time high in September, and then the other one was that North American fertilizer prices are also uh, 24% below its record high this March. So um, the Bloomberg story suggesting that maybe these are the first signs of the supply side pressure on inflation easing. Yeah, absolutely. And to add to that, you know, inventory data has also been you know particularly robust. Um, there's a lot of you know retailers that are they're sitting on you know a pretty healthy chunk of inventory relative mm -hmm. to, to expected sales. Um, and then you also have China reopening as well. So that's a whole nother, you know, labor force that, that can produce goods. And then you have, you know, the, the, the dollars rallied, you know, pretty materially since the start of the year. Um, now that that has cooled a little bit over the past couple of weeks, but you have a lot of forces that are, you know, sort of construction constructive for, for the inflation dynamic. So that by, by no means is, is, is not recognized by the market. But I'd tell you that the most important thing for, for inflation right now, or at least the one I'm most focused on, is crude, right, and energy costs. You know, with, with crude at, you know, almost $120 a barrel on its, like, you know, I think you've had a record number of, like, weeks or, or months of, of, of gains in, 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 in crude prices. Like, yeah. you know, that's going to feed through to everything, like, transportation costs like uh, you know food costs well whatever it may be energy you know is a core part of how people spend their money and they feel it when you go to the gas pump every week or every other week and so um, you know I know that the Fed likes to trim out the the volatile components of, of inflation but you know food and energy are, are a huge part of, of people's expenses and people are still going to be feeling right. the, the pinch if you know crude God forbid you know, rallies even even higher. Yeah. All right. Real quick, anything uh, standing out in crypto markets specifically? I mean, last week before our podcast, there was a rally over the weekend that then uh, subsided. Uh, this weekend, uh, this past weekend, there was a rally brought Bitcoin into the mid thirty one thousands. It has subsided back into sort of the mid to high twenty nine thousands. Any anything else standing out to you in crypto specifically? You know, ETH BTC has continued to to make lower lows in in the trend. Um, I think that's a pretty meaningful breakdown that, that you've had, particularly in the context of, of the merge, you know, being a, a positive catalyst for, for ETH. Um, and you've seen some some incredible moves lower in, in some of the most popular L1s of, of the past year. I mean, Solana's through uh, $40, um, you know, AVAX is, you know, on in the, in the low, low 20 handles. Um, and, you know, I think we're probably closer to, to the bottom. Um, than than we 
than, than, than most people think, just because just as a function of, you know, there's a lot of sort of weak hands that have already been, been taken out of, out of the market. So sort of like, you know, you're, you're fairly close to seller exhaustion, I think. Um, and, you know, the, the price action yesterday, um, you know, sort of reinforced that in, in my mind. Yeah, where, on Monday. You know, Bitcoin, or, yeah, where uh, Bitcoin and ETH really like, you know, on moves lower, like they're underperforming. I mean, they're, they're not outperforming alts by that much anymore. Um, and you have sort of weird dynamics like, you know, um, you know, Cardano, is, uh, I think, is actually up on the day today, which is, <laughs> you know, given the, the, the bloodbath you're, you're seeing in the rest of the complex is, is strange. And so, you know, I really do think you're, you're at the point where um, you're, you're probably closer to the, the bottom than, than where people think. Yep. At the same time, I do have reservations because, you know, there, there's a lot of retail plays where, you know, People are just holding on to 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 trades and and you know let me just let me just take a step back right like in 2020 and, and 2021 there's never been a better environment for retail to invest basically everything they touch turned into gold why because the the Fed printed trillions of dollars gave people um, you know stimulus checks that's why you had things like AMC and GameStop you know rip to to, to crazy levels. Um, and you also had a bit of that in, in crypto. So there's a lot of retail money that that's flowed into crypto from the you know speculation and trading frenzy that you had um, as as a function of, uh, of of QE. And so I don't think that that positioning has really come down a lot. And I say that because a lot of retail favored names you haven't seen like mass capitulation moves quite quite yet. Um, you know without na naming any names, but there, there are certainly popular retail plays that just haven't had that, that massive sort of gut-wrenching move, move lower. Um, and I think that when you get that kind of move, you know, that's probably a good sign that it, it's close to a bottom. And I'll leave you with, you know, sort of one note that that's really important for trading, you know, particularly at, at the bottom end of ranges is that, you know, the math really helps you when, when you're bullish closer to, to the bottom of the range, right? You go from, you know, nine to let's say you're at a hundred and you go down to ten dollars. You know, that's a ninety percent move. But from ten to twenty, that's a hundred percent move. And so, you know, I do think that the the the, the math starts to to really favor um, playing crypto from from the long side, particularly on the alts soon. Yeah. Awesome, Bimnet. Thanks so much. You know me. I'm just gonna stack sats, but I love that commentary. Thank you so much. Um, and yes. and we'll talk to you again next week. Okay, let's talk about the Lummis and Gillibrand. Uh, Gillibrand uh, proposed or introduced legislation in the U.S. Senate, comprehensive um, crypto regulation. I think maybe the first truly comprehensive bill uh, for crypto regulation in the U.S., um, a bipartisan bill, Lummis, a, a senator, a Republican senator from Wyoming, Gillibrand, a Democratic senator from New York State. Um, very interesting, lots of discussion about this. This week um, covers a ton of topics. Uh, we'll dive into some of them, but ranging from the token taxonomy to tax, uh, to market structure, to stable coins, to consumer protection, a whole bunch of stuff. We're joined this week again. Very happy to have Tyler Williams uh, from Galaxy Digital Public Policy here uh, to walk us through it. Tyler, um, just let's give us the 50,000 foot view and, and sort of your macro perspective on this bill. Uh, great to have you, by the way. Yeah, thanks for having me back. And you know, as we 
sort of hinted on last week when we talked about public policy and what we were hearing in Washington. Uh, we talked about the macro climate. We talked about interest rate policy, what was happening from the Supreme Court policy and how that's influencing uh, the landscape. You know, I think, Alex, is, you're 100% right. This is the first sort of comprehensive bill that we have seen on crypto policy, uh, recognizing that there's, you know, dozens of bills in both chambers of Congress that have been introduced to sort of advance the ball. But this is uh, sort of the first progressive policy that we've seen from Congress towards the industry in a full bill package. So it's it's big, not only in the size, it's uh, 70 pages and uh, but it's big in the scope of importance. So, you know, we've, um, you know, seen the bills that have come across in uh, the past, things that we disliked, things that we were supportive of, but this is the first sort of progressive policy stance that we've seen in the support of the industry. Um, so you have to commend the the Senator, as you mentioned, the Senator uh, Lummis from Wyoming and Senator Gillibrand from New York, you really have to commend them to uh, putting something together that they could get out in a public facing position and their staffs for doing that because the work that goes on behind the scenes is is inordinate and they have to sort of sift through all the other things that they're going through. So my, my view is that this is positive from a variety of lenses. First, I think it says, you know, Congress has people, legislators that are interested on a bipartisan level in advancing pro-crypto policy. Like that sentiment can't be underscored enough. And I think, you know, from a... Um, from a pure uh, executive branch versus legislative branch perspective, this is another big thing that I think is a takeaway. It says that while we have the executive order going on, we're not going to let that consume all of the oxygen in the room. And Congress is saying that they want to lead and they aren't going to simply sit back and let the administration proceed, you know, un unfettered. So I, I think that's really positive from a yeah. institutional perspective. Absolutely. I mean, in general, I've been, and even outside of crypto, but it's certainly been true in crypto, like upset with Congress abdicating so much of its responsibility to the executive branch just historically, right, over time. So it's great to see them act here, particularly something that's so important for American competitiveness and, and innovation. Absolutely. I mean, we, we could spend a podcast talking about the abdication <laughs> of jurisdiction from Congress to the executive branch, but we don't have time to do that. No. <laughs> um, I, I think it makes really clear, like, crypto is allowed in the U.S., and um, the regulatory approach in the legislation is burdensome and strict and almost tilts towards bank-like or financial services. So I think that's another element. Um, so I think it'll probably be met with some resistance from the pure um, crypto native industry. But I think you have to, it's a balancing act. If you want progressive policy to act, you have to strike towards a middle ground. Yeah. And what I always say to people is I've always viewed Congress as a organization optimization body. And what I mean by that is Congress can only execute when there's um, sort of exigent circumstances influencing it. Uh, so you think about natural disasters and you think about crises and you always see Congress producing an outcome. And the other way that you do it is by building consensus. And when you have, um, you know, a 50-50 Senate and you have a, um, slight majority right now for the Democrats in the House, you have to build consensus and you have to do that by some type of compromise. So I think that's another element in there. So what what are some of the big items that really stand out to you in the bill? Um, you know, 
in general, like what's, what are sort of your, your the most interesting? Cause I mean, this is a, like you said, a 70 page bill, tons of stuff in there, but what's at the top of your mind when you, when you look at it? Yeah. Maybe, maybe if I just can cover the challenges real quick and then I'll cover that. Sure. So I, I okay. think, you know, on, on a first order basis, those are some of the pros on the challenges. I think, you know, the uh, Senator Lummis is on, on the banking committee. Uh, Senator Gillibrand's on the ag committee. Uh, there's obviously split jurisdiction in different congressional committees over tax, over banking, over uh, commodities, over a variety of other uh, areas that this bill touches. So I think it's important that you have um, senators from cross-jurisdictional committees on the bill on a primary basis. Um, but I'm saying that the, the congressional sort of oversight of where committee jurisdiction lies, that's a challenge that they'll have to figure out how to work through. And then on a second uh, order challenge, I think the floor time and bandwidth that we talked about last podcast, that's a huge hurdle to get over, um, at least during the balance of this Congress. So you just mean it something, uh, is that crypto specific or just something like this is not high on the, not going to, you know, squeeze out that much floor time? I I think something like this, the challenge is you're going to have to build that broad based support that I was just talking about in terms of. How do you get to yes in Congress? It's like yeah. exigent, exigent circumstances, crises, and then organization optimization in building consensus. So I think what you'll see is that this is a marker. It's a huge bill. There's a lot of great things in there. Um, what I would expect to see from Senators Lummis and Gillibrand is that they'll use the remaining balance of the work periods in Congress to build bipartisan support. So they'll be talking to their colleagues on the Senate floor when they're voting, trying to sort of whip support. So yeah. if you see this incrementally tick up in terms of co-sponsorship and support, then that you know grows the chance of it becoming sort of something that Congress can uh, execute on. Uh, if it doesn't, I think it leads more to it being a, a platform that you can use to build the case for progressive policy during the next Congress. Got it. So then after the November election and, and I guess whenever the next Congress starts sometime in January of 2023, just a quick sort of process question, just generally speaking, let's say that um, the Congress, the Senate and the House don't change hands party wise um, in November. Let's just hypothetically say that regardless of which in this case, it would mean Democrats holding or gaining uh, a lead in the Senate um, and, and holding or even gaining in the House, which, you know, as far as I understand, the commentators think is unlikely. But let's say that happened and the dynamic didn't change. Could something comprehensive ever happen in a lame duck Congress because, you know, after November, before the new Congress starts, just because the political dynamic hasn't changed? Or would we still probably see big things pushed off till the next Congress? I, I think you'd still see big things pushed pushed off to the next Congress. Like you very rarely see a you know monumental legislation happening in that short period after the election before the new Congress. Like very rarely happens. Yeah. Usually, it's only sort of patch up things in terms of spending packages or continuing resolutions to fund the government. It's very rarely um, outside of that. That that's interesting. Tell us now then on my other question. Yeah. Like what, what couple issues in this comprehensive package really stand out to you? Yeah, I, I've been saying this a lot um, when I meet with policymakers that if you are, and I, this is something I think the bill does a good job at, if, if you're a bank or a markets participant in the U.S. in traditional finance, it's fairly understood how you're regulated, how your entity is treated from a definitional perspective. So I think one of the, the great things that the bill does is it, you know, includes definitions in the space that can sort of unite 
the industry and regulators around a common lexicon. So I think that's really important. Um, another uh, big thing that um, stood out to me is the Title IV of the bill is on commodities regulation. So the legislation grants the CFTC exclusive spot jurisdiction um, over all fungible digital assets that are not securities. I think that's a big thing. Uh, Title V in the bill is all about consumer protection, uh, requiring providers of digital assets to clearly disclose information in consumer agreements about the product. That includes bankruptcy proceedings, risk of loss, etc. Um, titles six and seven are all about payments and banking innovation. So in the legislation, it gives insured depository institutions the ability to issue stablecoin, has good regulations in there, has the ability to, or has the, uh, the requirement to maintain high quality liquid assets as reserves and then providing public disclosures. Uh, Title eight is all about interagency coordination. I think that's a huge deal because if you think back about some of the cross-jurisdictional state-federal fights that have happened in consumer privacy issues and data standards. We're still talking about that today, um, decades after sort of the early onset of the internet. So I think that's a big uh, thing to pay attention to. Uh, and then it also requires or seeks, it, it seeks some uniformity in terms of money transmission laws across states, which would be a big win allowing for business across states' lines uh, with appropriate regulatory approval. And then it um, you know, gives uh, information sharing agreements between agencies at the state and federal level. Like that's another big nut yeah. to crack, which hasn't happened uh, really in our state federal system. A lot of coordination here. Just a couple other quick questions. One, I didn't see anything when I looked, but is there anything like that's particularly like Bitcoin lopsided? There was some commentary last week um, when a draft of this had had uh, leaked, um, both from the Bitcoiners and from, you know, uh, opponents of Bitcoin saying that this was somehow like particularly favorable for Bitcoin. Um, I think they were sort of just misreading the commodities uh, portion of this. But did you see anything like that? No, I didn't see anything like that. I thought it tried to take a pretty neutral approach to things and sort of a fact based approach as opposed to looking at an individual token. Yeah. And then and then anything on Bitcoin mining in here? Well, uh, there is the the study on electricity use. So there is that. I think there's a couple different things happening on that. There is the effort within the Lummis bill. And there's obviously the effort led by the White House's OSTP in terms of studying this. And then you have a variety of things that we could spend a lot of time on talking about what's happening at the state level. Uh, in New York and elsewhere and then internationally. So there, there is a piece on it in terms of a study, but there's nothing that I read that was saying um, Bitcoin mining is bad based off of these electricity usages. Great. Um, really fascinating that we've seen such a, I mean, it was clearly a lot of work by um, these two senators and their staffs. And I know a lot of uh, industry trade groups were also um, helping to educate and, and, you know, so over a long period, and it incorporates a lot of stuff. I, you know, one thing I'll throw out here that I did see, it does, I believe have an element of uh, representative Warren Davidson's, is it own your keys, the name of his bill yep. in the house that makes it, uh, I, I don't want to say illegal, but, but adds protection, further protection for the right to self custody uh, Bitcoin. And I thought that was awesome to see too. So clearly an attempt at really like gathering has elements of the token taxonomy act of the digital commodities exchange act, right? 
a, a genuinely good faith effort to try to do something comprehensive. Seems absolutely. rare. Yeah, I, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely rare in this time. Um, you know, the last thing I will, I will say is, you know, this is an opening act. I really commend them for getting it out in the fashion that they did. The bill, like any bill that's introduced that's of this consequence, is going to be picked apart by lobbyists, by trade associations, by lawyers, industry skeptics. Like you could literally write a list of 100 different uh, interested parties that are going <laughs> to pick this up. Yeah. But what's important is it's on paper, it's in the public, and the debate can happen in earnest. And it takes pieces of things like you mentioned and puts them into a comprehensive package. And uh, what, I, uh, what I think that I mentioned earlier is that what you'll see is that if they can build support and a level of consensus that can lead to a path of execution in a legislative function, then I think we're really seeing something build from a momentum perspective in the industry. Awesome. Tyler Williams, uh, head of public policy and legislative regulatory affairs at Galaxy Digital. Thank you so much for joining us uh, to talk about this today. All right. Up next, let's talk about Lido, uh, the liquid staking protocol on Ethereum and Faye, a uh, decentralized stablecoin on Ethereum, uh, semi-decentralized, I guess I'll say partially collateralized is my understanding. Um, stablecoin on Ethereum, both of their DAOs um, are either have proposals or are considering um, significantly reducing their exposure to tokens, um, I, I suppose, as, you know, in reaction to, you know, market, um, market sentiment, market markets in general, right? Um, they own uh, stuff that isn't stable coins and uh, they want to be holding more stable coins. Christine Kim, uh, welcome. And uh, can you just fill in the blanks here, correct me, or give us the overview on, on what's happening? Yep. That is happy to um, just to give our listeners some context of, of crypto markets right now. ETH is down from its all time high by 63% and year to date um, ETH is down 51%. Um, and this is pretty relevant to the first um, proposal that we're going to talk about, which relates to the liquid staking protocol Lido, because last Friday, a core developer for Lido put forward a proposal um, saying that perhaps the community should consider um, voting to sell off 10,000 ETH of Lido's treasury funds and converting those into DAI, um, given that the crypto bear market, people aren't sure how long this bear market will last. Um, selling 10,000 ETH now would hypothetically be able to cover the operational expenses of the Lido team for about two years, which is, you know, giving a pretty wide time window for a, a pretty long runway, even if bear market conditions continue for that long, you know, Lido operations and the Lido team will be well covered. Um, this proposal that was that was kind of put out on the community forum last Friday um, is potentially going to be um, put forward for a off-chain vote. It's called a snapshot vote. It's not the final vote in the governance proposal 
process of Lido to get it fully activated, but it is the first stepping stone. And in order to see that um, proposal go through, at least for the off-chain vote, which is again, just the initial testing of the waters, uh, there needs to be someone who, who, puts up, who backs that proposal with 100 Lido and submits it. Um, that hasn't quite happened yet, but it's pretty interesting to see uh, this kind of sentiment, especially given that we're seeing very similar activity in another DeFi protocol in Ethereum called Fay. Um, so the Fay proposal is very similar in nature to, to what Lido's propo proposal was. Um, although Fay, the difference with Fay's proposal is that there's a bunch of other tokens that the Fay proposal is proposing to, to sell off and convert into DAI. Uh, these tokens include some I've, this is the first time I'm hearing of some of these tokens. Uh, some of them are AG, EUR, Angle, CBX, CRV, Aave, Comp, LQTY. So there, there are several. And, and this, this proposal isn't quite related to the treasury of Fay. It's actually um, about the PCV of Fay. So PCV is protocol controlled value. Um, for our listeners who might be familiar with a bit more with the MakerDAO structure of, of how a DeFi lending protocol works, uh, users lend um, ETH, they deposit, lock in a certain amount of ETH, and they get, get back an equivalent amount of DAI, which is a dollar peg stablecoin. In the FAE protocol, there's a slight nuance in that users also lock in tokens and collateralize tokens, except they're selling the tokens to the protocol itself, to the FAE protocol. And that's a one-way transaction. And what they get in return from that transaction is the dollar pegs FAE token. And then once they want to redeem the Fae token, they actually have to sell their Fae tokens into a pool, um, into one of the Fae protocol pools, and they get back an equivalent amount of, you know, any of the tokens that I listed. That, uh, in that are in the pool. Yeah, yeah. So there's Angle, yeah. there's CVX, CRV, Toge, Aave, etc. Um, and this proposal is saying we should actually sell off and, and, and reduce a lot of these um, more volatile tokens and purchase DAI and boost up the DAI Fay pool, the DAI Fay um, PSM. And this has created a lot of conversation on the Fay governance side. Um, many, you know, advocates of some of these smaller um, tokens, for example, the AGEUR token, there's conversations, controversies, talking about how, you know, this particular token, AGEUR, is not um, a governance token. You can earn liquidity and yield by keeping it around. It's worth, you know, the Fay protocol oh, keeping. Don't sell it. Um, <laughs> so they're saying, please don't, please don't dump our token, Fay Dow, exactly, uh, Fay protocol. Exactly. Yeah. And you know that kind of conversation hasn't really happened on the Lido side because the only um, three tokens that makes up the Lido treasury is ETH, Steph, and LDO. And so obviously Lido is the governance token. Steph is the um, liquid version of staked ETH. So neither of those two tokens are things that the treasury can necessarily dump because that would be very bad for the protocol. Those are their own tokens, basically. So the, really the yeah. only one that they can sell is ETH, which is why, you know, it's yeah. the proposal is 10,000 ETH. Is it like, it's like two different, maybe it is two different ideas. I, I think are both, 
you know, on the one hand, you've got the Lido DAO, right? So just to clarify, like when they say they want to sell some ETH or there's a proposal to sell ETH to raise runway funds to pay their team, that has nothing to do with the ETH that Lido is staking on behalf of users on the Beacon chain, right? This is ETH that they're holding in their DAO treasury, correct? Yeah. And it's it's truly for the purposes of the operational expenses of being able to pay your developers, keep the team going. Whereas the FAY protocol is really for the longevity and the stability of FAY um, yes. to continue operating. Um, and in many ways, I think both of them kind of harp back to what happened with MakerDAO after the Black Thursday crash. To be clear, we yeah, haven't you mean had- March 2020. Yeah, March 2020. Um, yeah. We haven't had, you know, like a significant uh, sudden rundown like what we saw on Black Thursday. But because of that event, MakerDAO's structure changed significantly. It went from single collateral die to multi-collateral die. We started to see the onboarding of, of things like USDC, um, centralized stable coins. And we're seeing a lot of DeFi protocols, or two in particular, what we're talking about, um, um, turn to DAI as a more stable option because of the way in which MakerDAO has proactively, in, in the aftermath of Black Thursday, have, they've changed their protocol to be mm -hmm. a lot more stable. And so I feel like, number one, it shows that um, perhaps MakerDAO strategy has been very effective and it is something that people, that makes it a lot more reliable in times of market downturn. And number two, in, I think this also talks, um, this also highlights um, just how much treasury management and how much um, DeFi protocol sustainability is about what backs and collateralizes your your protocol. And if it is truly, you know, if it's if it's decentralized coins, if it's if it's tokens, um, there's there's high risk. And and perhaps turning to more centralized options is really the only way for DeFi protocols to weather through bear markets. At this time, right? Because your point about the about March 2020 with Maker, they yes, it's multi-collateral and they have other stuff. It used to be only ETH that you could collateralize to generate DAI, die the stablecoin. Um, but not only did they make it multi-collateral, they they added USDC as a collateral type, right? So they added another stablecoin, and and um, is that like? I, well, I guess they'd be dumping. <laughs> Faye would be dumping some of these tokens for another stablecoin, and so it seems like. Some of it too is maybe in the wake of UST and and that unwinding, right? Because Fay is not like a it's not like a fully collateralized stablecoin. I I don't know a ton about it, but there's some other mechanisms involved, and they it, 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 both Lido and Fay's desires to alter the composition of these pools of assets like are clearly sort of in the near term a result of market conditions. But for Lido, it's more about developer runway. And for Faye, it's more about stability of the actual stablecoin, right? Um, I don't know. It just seems wild. Saul, I'd love you. I mean, you, you're, you've looked at DAOs. Like, what, what? This is like active management from DAOs. Right, right. I mean, at least on the Lido side, uh, so they're currently the eighth largest treasury in terms of treasury size in the DAO ecosystem, which is about 220 million. And 80% of that's Lido tokens, 17-ish percent is ETH. And then 3% is that stake ETH that Christine was mentioning. So I think you know, one thing that stands out is Lido is actually unique in that they're, compared to most other DAOs, somewhat diversified with their treasury. Uh, Uniswap, for instance, is 99% uni tokens. Um, and this is a common issue with DAO treasury management is they all have it in the native token. And so they when 
things happen like markets go down, they can't really sell the token because then it'll create a lot of negative price pressure and they're kind of just stuck holding that. And so that seems to be why Lido wants to sell some of its ETH, um, half of its ETH uh, rather, to have that two-year runway for its developers and to have a budget to operate off of. But it just feels to me like a knee-jerk reaction to you know some fear from the market cooling down a bit. And it seems like a really bad time to sell ETH, like basically at the bottom pre-merge. I don't know. Am I crazy for saying that? I mean, I, it does make you seem like, I mean, let's be clear. It goes back to uh, the HODL original meme, right? The Which was on Bitcoin Talk. He's like, you know, some of you people are smart enough to buy every top, to sell every top and buy every bottom, but not every one of us is as good a trader of that pit pep, piffy wing wing, um, is what he said <laughs> in this famous blog post. Right. I mean, obviously, you, you don't want to sell bottoms and buy tops. So like it does seem um, but we know they have other reasons here, too. But it seems like something they should have been thinking about proactively earlier. Absolutely. Um, it just kind of reminds me of my prior experience at Shapeshift, where it was it's very similar. And Shapeshift is now a DAO, so it's even more relevant. I think they have a balance sheet of all crypto assets, all kinds of different tokens. And it was a bear market. And we had a lot of you know people working for Shapeshift. We had costs. Uh, what they ended up doing is they didn't just sweep a bunch of tokens into US dollars. Uh, they would sell in tranches basically every month uh, over the counter, just enough to cover, I think, two or three months. And so it allowed them to, it's almost like the opposite of dollar cost average investing or kind of like spreading out the selling. So you're not necessarily selling purely the bottom. Uh, even something as simple as that might be a better way to do this than it. Se- it doesn't seem to me to be the the best time to dump seventeen million or whatever the number is worth of ETH into the market. And in fairness, I do think that the amount of conversation this proposal has created on the governance board of of Lido, um, I think there will be some changes to it made before it gets to the to the off chain quick snapshot proposal, um, because a lot of what you said, Saul, was echoed by the chair of the all-core developers called Tim Baiko. Um, his comment underneath that proposal, I mean, obviously he is is coming from a perspective of being from the Ethereum Foundation and probably doesn't want to see maybe perhaps that amount of, of ETH dumped, um, but but his his questioning around this was very similar to what you said, Saul, of um, perhaps this shouldn't be a knee-jerk reaction. And if it is something that the Lido team needs for operations now, um, writing through exactly, you know, what what groups um, need these funds now, how much, um, detailing out the proposal a little bit more and where these funds would go, um, and then doing it perhaps in like a breaking it out. So not doing 10,000 ETH all at once, but but yeah, staging it. Um, and so I think there's still more discussion to be had for both these, these two um, DeFi protocols. What is interesting is that all of this governance is transparent and the treasury management process is something that um, is being done in the public's eye. And I think we'll, we'll definitely change people's perspectives on, on DeFi longevity and sustainability for for more bear markets and market cycles to come, um, which we don't get with centralized protocols, I'd say. Yeah, I I agree. That is definitely notable that these discussions are happening in the open. And if and when they decide to trade, that will probably also be done in the open and maybe even in an automated way. I don't know the specifics around these two DAOs like setups, but 
but I will, I will point out, is a democracy the best way to manage manage assets? I mean, I, I don't know. Right. It seems like the crowd <laughs> is pretty frightened right now. And maybe, you know, that's why a lot of people in the real world hire a financial advisor. Um, yes. Yeah. I, are there financial advisors for DAOs? I mean, I was, I was just about to make that point is I think some of the more common skill sets in DAOs these days, whether it's engineering or just crypto expertise, is not necessarily translating well to treasury management functions and taking a two-year outlook on your quote-unquote balance sheet. Yeah. So yeah, much needed. And then just on Faye, lastly, like I think we'd be remiss if we didn't point out it is not a fully collateralized uh, or crypto over collateralized stablecoin like Maker. It is not one like, uh, you know, a, a fiat collateralized off-chain centrally issued stablecoin like USDC. I, I'm not an expert in this, but it has some elements of of um, of sort of algorithmicness to it. So, you know, buyer beware on that. But I'm looking now at the chart, at least since December, it's been pretty stable in the scheme of things. It's gone down, you know, almost to 98 cents um, in March, but not nothing like what we've seen in others. So um, maybe they're trying to preemptively sort of shore up that collateral um, with something truly stable, um, you know, well, <laughs> to the extent that that is too, right? But some kind of dollar pegged asset that that is over collateralized because, you know, who knows? I mean, by dumping stuff now, whether they know it or not, Faye or Lido, they are taking a view that prices go lower in these assets. Um, so that is active management by a doubt. Very interesting stuff. Okay, so for our last topic today, um, let's talk about the Board Apes Yacht Club, that club of uh, apes that like to go on yachts and are the creators of monkey pictures. Um, <laughs> they, they're The admin of their Discord uh, looks like was fished or spearfished and, and the Discord uh, account was, was hacked and used to post, you know, phishing stuff. And I guess some people lost, uh, you know, clicked on it because it was the admin of the Discord and they thought that was verified. And lost some some coins or some NFTs. Saul, uh, tell us the story here, and uh, we'll and we'll discuss it. Yeah, for sure. Um, so on this past Saturday, one of the moderators of the Board Apes Yacht Club Discord, named Boris Wagner, uh, his credentials to log into that Discord were compromised somehow, and so through that account, the hacker posted a fake giveaway to holders of the Yuga Labs NFTs. And ultimately, some users uh, clicked on that link and invoked a transfer function. And ultimately, uh, one board ape and two mutants were stolen, worth around $350,000. Yuga Labs uh, caught it pretty quickly, though. So that was the extent of the damage. And they said shortly after shutting down the attack that um, they were still investigating and that they wanted to reiterate that there's no such thing as a surprise mint or a surprise giveaway uh, <laughs> generally. <laughs> I'm thinking about Christine's talk. Just stop clicking on links, people, right? It's that easy. <laughs> generally. But these things do happen in crypto, which is why I feel like people are more susceptible to it. Yeah. Several yeah. teams at a time have said, we're not going to do any token drops. We're not launching a token. And then shortly thereafter, they actually <laughs> launch a token. And right. so I don't think that we have the best I don't know, the best norms that we like keep reinforcing, I think, to people yeah. who are active in the space. And it was a verified admin. I will say that we don't know how his credentials were were leaked, his credentials to log into the Discord, but that has nothing to do with that web three. That's very much like a web two, like a human, yeah. um, human, human thing. Error. Yeah, but still. 
So, I mean, to that point, though, you as a company in Web3 are only as strong as your weakest link in terms of operational security. And that is incredibly hard to guarantee because essentially the only way to guarantee this wouldn't happen is every person that works or moderates for you has to have unique logins for every website they use. And these logins need to be at least X amount of characters, 15, 16 characters long. And they also can't leave their computer open ever because that's another attack vector and they can't fall susceptible to social engineering attacks and so on and so forth. Um, so until we're completely decoupled from Web2 and decoupled from using things like Discord and Instagram, which is the previous hack that Board Apes Yacht Club um, facilitated in late April, uh, this is probably going to keep happening. It's like, because they also said, um, they kind of blamed Discord a little bit. They uh, did. Labs yeah. did. Like this is this a pattern? They kind of also blamed Ethereum when the ApeCoin drop had <laughs> problems too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think they might be kind of insinuating that maybe they should move to the they should own that distribution from the infrastructure side in terms of the blockchain right. used and from the actual information dissemination you know, platform. Maybe they won't use Discord. I mean, who knows what what they will end up using? But I don't know. It's it's because like Instagram was the last platform they used, and it was the same exact vector. It was a phishing attack through a hacked yeah. a moderator account. So you can't really, I don't know, blame Discord too much. Yeah. It just shows like how careful you have to be. Um, and, and honestly, even more so in Bitcoin or crypto or NFTs, just because you possess digital bearer assets. But in general, um, cybersecurity is an absolute bear of a problem. And, um, you know, even like you know, admins of technology, you know, technology workers, right, are are susceptible to this problem. It is there. There are very sophisticated attacks out there. Um, so just you know, be cautious, right? Be cautious. There is something to be said about. I think you could probably, if of any of the NFT, you know, Web three quote unquote companies out there, they deserve their own distribution and their own platform. If you look at the numbers, I always throw around mm -hmm. the roughly 70% market cap of ETH NFTs. Another one that I found recently is since a year ago. So since May 2021 to now, to today, Yuga owns 25% of all NFT trading volume. Wow. Which is massive. Volume. I mean, it's anywhere from 20 to 25%. It ranges, but it's consistently above 20% for the past year. If you're counting all of punks, apes, mebits, like the ones that they own, mm -hmm. that's, that's insane. I mean... We, we talk about how much volume OpenSea does and the 2% fees and all of that. I mean, it just makes so much sense that they might just own that trading. So I, IP, they own aggregate market cap 70% of all ETH-based mm -hmm. NFT market cap. Roughly, yeah. And then you're saying, uh, is that Ethereum-based NFT trading volume? They're 20% they're or more over the last year. Yes. That's crazy. Since last May. Um, Absolute beast. So they, they probably do... They probably should, at some point, you know, move to a different chain, at least for some functionality, maybe just the ApeCoin functionality, which is what they're talking about. Rumors are saying they're considering an AVAX subnet or moving to Flow for that. And maybe on the trading side, too. I mean, this is an insane amount of NFT volume. Make their own marketplace or something. Yeah, exactly. I'd be surprised if they weren't working on that. Let's put it that way. Wild story. Um, just, again, stay safe out there, uh, folks. And, uh, you know, keep your keys uh, not your not your keys, not your coins, and also don't sign random messages uh, with your MetaMask wallet that you're unaware of. All right, that's it on the big stories. Let's get into the quick takes. Uh, first one, step in uh, the walk, so-called walk to earn app uh, built on Solana. 
I guess reported multiple DDoS attacks uh, after they, you know, did a major upgrade um, and they were down for a while. Um, are they back up? And uh, anybody have thoughts on this? So apparently I think it, it's just kind of a recurring thing. I think apparently it happened again this morning. They're just motivated to see this thing fail. That's kind of my quick take. Who who is the the sort of DDoSers, the hackers? Oh yeah. <laughs> so the, the common attack, uh, co- common target, I guess. I think this showed that micropayments perhaps don't work on Solana either. Oh lord, mm. we did the Solana debate last week, guys. <laughs> All right, Crusoe Energy, the privately uh, held U.S. Uh, company that helps oil and gas um, producers capture wasted natural gas and use it to mine Bitcoin, um, sometimes called flare gas uh, mining. They're expanding into the Middle East and and taking some investment from the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Abu Dhabi um, and Oman. Um, You know, flare gas is interesting because methane, which is a natural byproduct for all oil and gas um, uh, production sites, um, even if you're just trying to get the oil, some methane comes up, and that's those are those burning flames you see at the top of the the pipes on on a product on a well site. Um, they, they burn that methane off, um, or some of it gets vented if they can't uh, take it away from the site. Right? If there's not a pipeline, if they don't have capacity to remove it, um, and methane is one of the worst greenhouse gases, significantly worse than carbon dioxide. So a lot of the um, interest from companies like Crusoe has been helping companies use methane-based generators to power a Bitcoin mine, right? And yes, the generators will emit CO2, but that's significantly um, less greenhouse gas-ish um, than methane. And so it has a, has a major net positive effect um, on climate change. And so anyway, a lot of oil and gas companies are interested in this. Apparently, I mean, you know, Oman and Abu Dhabi, like, I don't know that much about the Middle Eastern oil scene, but I think... Everyone down there on the peninsula, um, the Arabian Peninsula, which both Abu Dhabi and Oman are, has a lot of it. Um, so I don't know. Seems seems like this is really really happening. We also heard that like Exxon and I think and some other big oil companies had projects also are also doing this. So that's could get interesting. Um, Bitcoin as a major feature of the energy industry. Totally mining Bitcoin and saving the planet all at the same time. Love to hear it. Um, all right, so I guess we'll just do one more here. Binance, the world's largest, I believe, largest exchange, uh, crypto exchange, um, has Reuters published an investigation said that it was used to launder a minimum of two billion in illicit funds over I don't know last couple of years. Anybody have a take on this? Don't the major banks? I heard like the statistic is two trillion a year. <laughs> <laughs> just putting that out there. I don't have that on tap, but uh, that wouldn't surprise. Um, there was a bank that I think uh, was found to have suitcase-sized deposit boxes uh, <laughs> at their uh, bank branches a few years ago. And I would add that it's important to take this number into context. It was $2 billion over the past five years. And on the daily, Binance does $13 billion in trading volume. So, I mean, let's let's take that number into context and recognize that it's an extremely, extremely small percentage of their total trade volume. Oh, great points, everyone. Um, okay, that's it for today. Thank you for listening to Galaxy Brains um, from Galaxy Digital Research. Um, thank you to Christine Kim and Saul Kadir from Galaxy Digital Research, to Tyler Williams uh, from Galaxy Digital Public Policy, and Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Digital Trading. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of firmwide research at Galaxy Digital. Um, and please join us next week. Have a great weekend.
Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, a weekly podcast from Galaxy Digital Research. If you enjoyed this show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to learn more about Galaxy Digital Research and what we work on, check us out on Twitter at GLXY Research and read our reports at galaxydigital.io slash research. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you next time.